So let's pray. Um, Father, we come before you now. Lord, before we enter into our time of, of continuing to, to worship you through this, the studying of your word, um, Lord, we want to lift up those that are part of our body to, to you. Uh, we lift up Eddie, who um, he's young at 43, to, to have this um, significant of a back surgery this early um, is significant. And, and so we thank you for the medical technology that we have, that they have the ability to go in and, and do this work to the spine is, is amazing to me. Um, and Father, we lift him up to you and just, just ask that his body would be able to fight this infection that uh, is sort of a secondary problem from the surgery. And so we just ask that as the doctors and the nurses and, and the staff at the hospital monitor him right now as we speak, that um, you would give them wisdom. Um, we pray that his body would heal and fight this infection as you have designed it to do. Uh, we ask that by the time they uh, release him, hopefully today, um, that the doctors will have assurance that, that the body is as healthy and strong as it needs to be. Um, I just pray for Eddie and, and his emotions. This is, uh, it's hit him hard, and so I pray that you would uh, strengthen him and, and give him peace in you, um, knowing that you are in control. And... We turn our attention also to Brian, who we all uh, know and love, this faithful servant of yours who um, endures much suffering on a day-to-day -day basis with the, the massive catastrophic uh, hearing problems that he has from that accident many years ago. Um, Father, we lift him up to you right now that you would give him uh, peace of mind and heart as he it quietly endures the suffering of loud noises and, and, and ringing in his ears and uh, the, 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 the feeling of, of spinning that he's experiencing right now. Uh, we pray, Father, that he would keep his mind and heart on you, uh, that he would be grounded in you even though he doesn't physically feel grounded with, with the vertical. Um, we pray for this appointment on Tuesday that you would give the doctors wisdom to identify what's causing the problem and that they would have uh, the information and ability uh, to fix what is causing um, the vertigo and that his ears would be preserved. Um, we just ask that you'd have it, your hand on him now. And Father, we do pray for Pete. We thank you for, for Pete. Um, uh, Lord, we don't know what's going on with him and his headache. We do ask, Lord, that um, you would have your hand upon him and his body and, Lord, help his body to, to heal uh, whatever injury has happened um, in reaction to this fall. Uh, we do pray again for the doctors that you would um, give them availability to get him into this, uh, the test, whether it's a CT scan or an MRI scan, I'm not sure, but that you would be able to get him in quickly so that he can... Um, have this procedure done so that the doctors can see into his mind and see uh, if there's something dangerous happening that's causing this. Um, and we just, we pray for him, Lord, that you would uh, just just help him, Lord. And, and uh, 
we're grateful for the hope that we have in Christ. I do thank you for Pete and Dolores, their, their faithfulness, you know, as it's her birthday today of 91. And I know this, this summer, I believe it's July, they have 74 years of marriage. And so we thank you for their, uh, their encouragement to us and their example to us of walking with you faithfully. Um, we pray that you would bless them in a special way. And Lord, as we turn our attention to the text at hand, uh, Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, help us to see the story, to see this unfolding story that, that Mark is, is uh, moving us along at a, a fast clip. Uh, Lord, as we look at today's story, we pray that you would help us um, to, to, to see what is written before us and that you would um, help us to know Christ more, to know ourselves with, with clarity um, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would recognize our sin problem and that we would deal with that, uh, whether through accepting you as Savior um, or if we're already saved, um, confessing our sin before you, that we would grow in Christ's likeness. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to be the people that you desire us to be. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, we ask that during this time, your word uh, would do in our lives what you say, say it will do. And so, Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity uh, to gather here to worship collectively. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. <clears throat> Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. <clears throat> and I think I'm going to go all the way actually to verse 20. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idiomia and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he came home to, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Lord, we praise you for your word. 
We ask that you would help us as we navigate this passage. Uh, help us to understand the context. context ask, help us to understand uh, what the principles are that we can apply uh, to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Um, so I'm going to share on a bit of a personal note. You know, I, I, I kind of uh, you know, try to be transparent and open. And, and uh, this was a week that was exceptionally difficult on me, um, which is not unusual with being a pastor. There's a lot of times <clears throat> that things are placed on you and you, uh, you know, have to seek God and figure out how to handle it. Sometimes people are just going through difficult times and you have to be there for them. And it can, it can be difficult. It can be weighty on, on a person's soul. Um, you know, there were, there were highs and lows. I'm not saying that this, it was, it was just a, a, a heavy week um, that at one point had me feeling like pretty discouraged and a little bit like just beat up. And, um, but, then, but then there were like highs, like the, the men's prayer ministry, not to, not to, not to give a shameless plug for the, the men's prayer meeting, but, but it was just a sweet time of prayer this week. I mean, it's always good, but there's some, like, it was just a really, for me, was just really rich. Um, and, and then last week, sort of a, a hard note, a guy I'd served with for many years in the SEAL teams, Mike Martin, just, he's like a legendary guy in the SEAL teams from Vietnam. He had 13 years break in service, and then he served with me my whole time that I was at SEAL Team 3. He uh, owns a tattoo parlor, He's left his mark on many, many seals in more ways than one, <laughs> myself included. And, and he died last week. And so I was like, okay, this is a guy I need to go to his funeral. And then on Wednesday, all of a sudden, I, I, I you know, go onto Facebook and my, my account is kind of blown up on me. I'm like, what is going on? And... So this this guy, um, the family's trying to figure out, like, we need to figure out how to get a chaplain. And, of course, they're like, hey, Gunner served with him for many years. Let Gunner do it. Like, let's reach out to Gunner. And so everybody's tagging me um, to do his funeral, which is a huge blessing, but it's also terrifying because this is, this is, like, no joke of my two worlds colliding and... And not only just colliding, but that I've now have been asked to be the one that that shares, um, and and so and so I could use your prayer. I mean, this is like biker dudes and all sort. Like probably half of the seals on the west coast will be there. Um, Rick knows them, and he's like, "Hey, man." How about I drive you and I can be your prayer warrior? He's like, I don't mind the the, the biker gangs and that. And I'm like, yes, I'll let you drive and you can just be my wingman for the whole thing. And and um, but this was a week where I was feeling very much the famous quote of uh, Vince Lombardi that says, um, "Fatigue makes cowards of us all." Uh, <laughs> midway through the week. Somewhere in there, Anna looks at me kind of laughing. She's like, what are you preaching on this week? Because this is like, this is one of those weeks. Like, and 
normally she can anticipate what I'm preaching on because of whatever I'm struggling with. It's somehow it always happens that way. And I looked at her and I said, it's nothing. It's an innocuous passage. It's, it's like a transition passage. It's like the crowds are there. He calls the 12 apostles. I don't see anything. <laughs> and then after she said that, like later we were separated, and I, I go, okay, I've gone through the text enough times. I'm going to start opening up some commentaries and start studying to see what other guys have to say. And the first headline of commentary number one, the pressures that come with a faithful ministry, <laughs> and then had all these like subpoints. The second I opened up, the headline of the section, the perils of effective ministry. <laughs> I take pictures of that, text it to Anna, and she just is like, that's really funny, you know? Um, and so clearly there's more to this text than meets the eye, or at least uh, to my eye initially. I read it a bunch of times. And it's like the usual, you know, we're just used to it, the usual. People flock to Jesus. Every now and again, you get some demons that are there. Sometimes you get some like religious guys that are upset. Sometimes you get the crowds that are all happy. Like it's, there's, it's just, it's, I was guilty of coming to this passage and just sort of seeing it as routine. And then as I went through from like one commentary to the next commentary to the other commentary to the other commentary, I go, oh, maybe I've been reading this through a wrong lens. And so we start with verse 7. And we read, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Um, this word withdrew, it, it, it actually could, could be translated, the, the idea behind it is to flee from danger. That, that he left for fear, a threat, something was going on, and we think, well, what was the threat? Well, if we go the immediate context in verse 6, remember, the Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him to show how they might destroy him, the, like to literally execute him. And as Mark goes through, there's this building pressure. Um, Jesus is slipping out of situations, um, saying the time has not come yet. He's telling people to keep their mouths shut because he knows that the moment will come when it was time for him to go to the cross. But in this moment, as they were beginning to conspire, Jesus withdraws from his disciples. And what I missed, that's there once it was, you know, some other thinkers, this is like he withdrew with his disciples to try to get away, to get some space to... Um, Uh, to, re to recharge his batteries. And we do see this cycle in Jesus' life through the Gospels where um, we see him serving, giving of himself, teaching, demonstrating his authority through healings and various things to authenticate who he was as the Messiah. But then we see him also withdrawing himself and recharging his batteries. And this seems to be a case where his attempt was to withdraw himself so that he could recharge his batteries. Um, in the last few weeks, kind of looking at the Sabbath, the, the Sabbath, it was either two or three weeks that, 
the, the, the Sabbath issue and the violation of the laws kept coming up. And so it was a, yet again that it's just for, for the life of, that I've been in ministry, I've continually been convicted about the importance of the Sabbath and taking time for rest, but I'm my own worst enemy. Um, it's not in my nature to do that. And so I've, in the last few weeks, really trying to like put this in, put this in uh, to, to, to practice. And really over the last year when Barry, who was here, uh, my friend Pastor Barry, who we prayed for, um, he essentially had a, a catastrophic meltdown health and emotion-wise because of the pressures of the ministry. And so it was a very sad and sobering period for me that over the last year, like, I'm like, I got to make some, like, real adjustments in my life. And that's why, like, I started riding my bike to work. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like I got to build an exercise, got to try to do some things. And, and uh, you know, Barry's doing good now. He, he moved to Texas, and he, I think he's trying to recruit all of Cal- the conservative California to go to Texas with him. It's like, Barry, and I'm called to California. Like, I'm called here. And, and um, but, but it's the, the, the stories of those in ministry that, are, that, that get burnt out and that their families suffer collapse, it's, it's hard for me not to like see like all of these guys. I didn't see it, probably because I didn't want to see it. And then all these commentaries, all these scholars are pointing this out about Jesus. And it's like, ah, yet again, Lord, you're not going to like remind us um, th- that we need to care for ourselves. Um, we live not just, this isn't just for me, but we live in a society that is extremely fast-paced, that the, I, I heard one mom recently, a friend of ours, say that in her day-to-day thing, often during the week, like on a one day, four hours in a car, shuttling her kids back and forth from every single activity. And it happens across the board. And God didn't design us to kill ourselves like this. And so here he's trying to get away with his disciples, but then we see a bunch of ants and a great multitude from Galilee followed. I, I think these are kind of not invited guests. Like I, at first I read this and I thought, oh, this is just, oh, look at this. All this good stuff's happening. But then as I dug deeper, I don't think that verses, like the second half of verse 7 and into 8, I don't think these are invited people. We see a great multitude from Galilee. Just as I read this before I break, I don't know if you guys can read it. Um, there's circles. The square is Galilee. Um, there's one, two, three, four, five. This is Israel. Uh, that's, that's kind of the flow that I'm saying. So a great multitude from Galilee followed in the square, and also from Judea, which is the middle of the southern bubbles, and from Jerusalem, which is a little bit north of that middle bubble behind me, and from Idiomia, which is the region that goes down to Egypt, which is the very bottom bubble, and beyond the Jordan, so the Jordan River flows from north to south, from the Galilee to the Dead Sea, and he's saying from the east of the Jordan, that whole region, that's the big bubble to the right, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, which is the northern bubble. There's two cities up there. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. If we get down to verse 9, the things that they'd heard of him doing is that he was, he'd healed many people. The, the the word had spread. 
as we look at the map, one thing that jumps out at me is we often think of Jesus' earthly ministry, particularly before the cross, as an exceptionally Jewish period, that this is like he's, he's been called to his Jewish people, he's ministering predominantly to Jewish people. But when you look at this map, this is, this is a, the whole bubble number five at the top, that's all Gentiles. To, to the east of the Jordan, all Gentiles. Idiomia, I don't think that was very Jewish per se, but pro- probably this. But this is, this is an eclectic ethnic bunch. This, this is Jews and basically everybody you can think of. The, the word had spread and had descended upon Jesus. And the thing that grips me, the phrase that, that really jumps out of the page in verse 8 is they had heard about what he was doing. So the question, well, what are, they hear, what are they hearing about what he's doing? They're hearing about that he's healing people, verse 9. Um, so what's motivating them to come? They want Jesus to do something for them. They have a need, they want it fixed. He essentially becomes their butler, their servant. Jesus, do, do, do this for me. Which begs the question, why have I come to Jesus? Why have you come to Jesus? Is he uh, kind of at your beck and call? Like, are, do, you, do you view him as your butler in your prayers? You know, this is like John Piper's big thing is when he... Uh, talks about prayer. He said most of us uh, view God as our butler where we press the button and say, you need to bring my, oh, I don't even know the, what's a really good stitch count for a blanket? I don't know. Like, I was going to say 100, but I think it's more like in the thousands. Like, I don't even know what the stitch, like, give me the super nice, super soft blanket. Give me the, just the right pillow. Oh, I, you know, there's a little pain in my my toes, so can you adjust my life so that I have no suffering in it? And his big point is like, no, prayer is supposed to be like a a walkie-talkie or a radio for in combat, and we've been commissioned to battle, and we're calling out to the Lord as, as our commander, seeking counsel and advice, and where do you want me to go? But so often we come because we want him to do for us, namely to make our lives easier and more pleasant. The other side of the coin, when I, when I see this, or have we flipped the coin in modern Christianity, which has come up with the, the legalism, is, is have we flipped the coin, not what Jesus is doing, but what can I do in order to gain his acceptance? And it's like, oh, Jesus, look at this. I, I did this. Taught a Sunday school class. Or I helped this little lady. Or I, I did this. I used my blinker. Or whatever it is that we, like we're doing a bunch of stuff to try to gain his acceptance. When either last week or the week before, I said that, um, that that's religion. I do, therefore I'm accepted. When Christianity, the gospel says you're accepted. And from that, you do. Huge. Um, it's a, it's a, the, the contrast is huge from God's perspective, from the inward perspective, from the external perspective. For us, it can be a little bit hard because we just see, oh, look, at that's just a good Christian person doing all sorts of wonderful things. 
But we don't see the motive behind why are they doing that. And the motive is everything. And so we go on to verse 9. These crowds that have descended who just seem to, to want stuff from Jesus. And he tells his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him. Now, now right away when I see this, where my brain just, and for a lot of us, probably there's, we're familiar with, with the gospel story. We're, we're familiar with these stories. We're familiar with Jesus pulling up a boat and using it sort of as his mobile pulpit where he could sit on the bow, have the natural amphitheater, and so my brain began, began filling in that picture. But then as some others pointed out to me, I was using a, an incorrect picture. Because we don't see anything about him actually teaching. But our brains go there because we're used to Jesus kind of. We have this image of him on the boat and all the nice people, you know, <laughs> behaving themselves, sitting there, you know, crisscross applesauce, you know, raising their hands like very cordial. That's not the scene. This is a mob scene. And he's like, get the boat ready in case we need to evacuate. I mean, and he told his disciples, a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And if we go back to the end of chapter 1, when Jesus healed the leper, and he said, listen, I did this for you. I had compassion for you. I did what nobody else would do, and I touched you, and I healed you. Don't say anything to anybody. Simply go back to the priest, have him go through the Mosaic law, verify that you're cleansed, make whatever offering is required of you, Go back into your community and be blessed, but don't say a word of what happened. And he didn't. He went and told everybody. And the ball begins rolling down the hill so fast and so out of control that Jesus' ministry and his plan was diverted by what a well-intentioned person did in disobedience. And so now this huge crowd is there. And, and, and again, like I confess, like when I first read this, it's just like, oh, Jesus is in the business of healing people. Like all these crowds, this is wonderful, big numbers. He's, you know, just kind of healed. Everybody's happy. Oh, you guys are hungry. Let's feed you. Let's kind of, you know, doing what Jesus does. But that's not what's happening. One commentator talks about this crowd, and then he says, uh, when they heard about Jesus' healings and the things that he was doing, he says people wanted in on it. They did not care about him, but only what they could get from him. They were not concerned about his privacy, his need for time alone, or his need for food and rest. Verse 20, that's why I kind of read ahead. We're going to cover this next week. But as this story sort of ends, and then we pick up, again, the crowds descend on him. And we're told in verse 20 that it was so crowded and they were so overwhelming that he and the disciples couldn't even eat a meal. Like basic, 
you need to eat. Like every, it's a basic part of life, you know, at least a meal a day. Most of us are, are good with three or six meals a day, you know, like, like, like but he, they can't even eat because the crowds are so choking them out. They only wanted to use him for his miraculous power. And so this is uh, super convicting. And in several ways, the, the first that I see is asking myself, and you can ask yourself, am I coming to Jesus for him to do stuff for me? Or am I coming before Jesus as my Lord saying, Lord, teach me. Like, show me. That song that we sang got me all choked up. Like, I didn't, like, I didn't see. The, it was like a song I've been hearing. And I didn't, the connection just was sort of accidentally, you know, divine, probably. probably. Like, teach me. Lord, show me areas in my life. Lord, you are Lord. I want to be taught by you. I humble myself at your feet in submission. I need you to take me by the hand and to show me how to do life. Show me what it means to be a Christian. Show me what it means to be a spouse that honors you. Show me what it means to be a parent that honors you. Show me what it means to be a pastor. Show me what it means to, how, to, to be an employer or an employee. What does it look like? But so often we go to God with, uh, hey, God, this is what I need from you. Here's your checklist for the week. Hopefully, I know you're busy, but you know, take two or three days, but get around to it. And we, we, we go like we're barking out orders to him. Do for me. And we'll see at this passage at the end, we're, we're going to talk about it as it leads there. We'll see that he's going to call the 12 apostles. And what he does is call them so that they could spend time with him. And I think so often we come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, just as these people did. I also see in this picture in the people coming to Jesus and, and you know, Jesus in the flesh took on 100% man while being God. It's, don't ask me to reconcile that. It's, 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 it's hard for our brains to reconcile this. But in his humanity, there's no sensitivity to him. And basic needs, like even be able to get a, a meal, they're, they're, they're so consumed by themselves and placing all of these demands on Jesus. And so the question for me is, how do I do this to other people? Am I sensitive to other people? Am I sensitive to what they're going through? If somebody says something to me and stressed out, it's like, is there something more to what's going on? Are they stressed out? Are they burdened? What's, what's going on under the surface that I can't see? As it relates to, to my life, like as a, a pastor and, and 
and going the distance, I, uh, like there's something that first responders and clergy go through, and it's called compassion fatigue. It's something that's like really, really common. Um, the, the, the first time, well, the time, like, I don't need to go into all. I was told by a therapist that I had compassion fatigue. Um, and I was only the therapist on accident. Like, I wasn't there for me. Like, <laughs> it's like, like uh, as, a, as a chaplain, there was, a, there was a, a meeting that we went to at the medical examiner's office, and these therapists came in that deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, and they said, hey, we'll open up our services to the chaplains of San Diego County for free and indefinitely. And so I basically emailed the lady and said, I don't believe in you guys. I think you're a bunch of whack jobs. And I said that. Like, I, <laughs> I said, <laughs> but I do believe in PTSD. And in law enforcement and the military, that, like, it's, it's very real. Um, and I've had a lot of trauma, so I'm willing to subject myself to you to see if what you're saying is a bunch of crock or if it's legitimate. And so, so we started. She said, oh, three sessions like 10 sessions later, um, she really helped me. Um, I went to her in a month that the month began with Cal's passing. It ended with a call from Franz Stefan, who had moved away, saying Tom's brother had just died, and could I go to the house in Fallbrook to sit with the, his sister-in-law because... Tom's brother had just taken his life. In between these two, there were five other deaths that I was involved with. And I remember driving to Tom's brother's house and just kind of almost pulling over on the side of the road and saying, Lord, I can't do it. I I just, I can't do this. I'm sick of this. Give me a baby or something, like a wedding. Like, I... Like, why have you given me the spiritual death or spiritual gift of, like, doing funerals, you know? Like, it's so many pastors and their wives deal with compassion fatigue because so much gets dumped on them. And that's why the, fall, the fallout rate for pastors is probably almost as great as, as those trying to make it to the SEAL program. Like, like the, the fallout rate of pastors quitting within the first three to five years is, is off the charts. If you know a pastor that's been a pastor for more than 10 years, they're like the exception. And what I've learned and have, am learning being like 12 years into this is that like you, you have to fight for margin. You have to fight for leadership, which I'm super thankful for the leaders in our church that support me in huge, huge ways. Which this is, this, is, this is not a complaint. This is like a look behind the veil. Um, you know, I know most people think pastors work one hour a week on Sundays, so I'm just trying to like... Um, and I do think that some pastors have a tendency of withdrawing, total, like t- totally like hiding in back rooms and not being around people, and I, that's not what I feel like God has called me to do. Um, but so when I see this pressing in on Jesus, 
it's, it's, I think it's a call for all of us to examine our lives, like I said, in this very fast-paced culture that we live in, um, to consider what's driving us. I do think that Scripture calls us as believers to be a thoughtful people who think and consider our motives in how we uh, respond to God and to others in our actions and the things that we do or don't do. We're not just supposed to like meander through life without considering what we're doing. And I think that so many of us in our culture are just going at a breakneck speed and the wheels are coming off the bus and we don't know why. When I think that there's plenty in, our, in the scriptures that call us to be a people that take time to, to dwell on the, the things that are good, to dwell on God, to, to, to consider what is he calling us to do. And so in the midst of this, Another, another just a usual story as I read it the first few times. <laughs> Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. That's, that's totally Jesus-y. I mean, that happens all the time. <laughs> like, why would, this even, why would this even catch my attention? Let's first deal with unclean spirit, like just the, the reality there is a demonic realm. There's no way around it. There are spiritual powers at play around us in this world. And you don't believe it, I'd say, hey, go, go down to your local police department and go for a couple ride-alongs. You'll see some crazy stuff. Um, you know, our culture doesn't have a category for like demon possession, and and but there's a lot of uh, people that would be deemed fifty one fifty or crazy, and you go something is not. It's like something is off kilter. There's something more going on to this individual. There, there are influence if you're in Christ. We're told that you have the Spirit of God within you, and greater is He that is in you that is in the world. So this isn't like trying to like freak you out. Like God has authority. So I don't think a Christian can be demon possessed, but I do think you can be influenced. And if you're not, then you if you're not a Christian, then there, the Bible makes room for you to be possessed. It's probably more than I want to say, but the the the, the reality is there's a bunch of uh, unclean spirits who are in this crowd and they're proclaiming you are the son of God. So what they say is actually, it's correct. Sounds good. But in reality, it's a demonic attack on Jesus because Jesus isn't really interested in having demons being on his evangelism team. <laughs> like, there's a whole lot that gets done under the banner of Christianity that's evil. That's not Christianity. It's taken on the, the cloth or the label. Like, like, 
should have wrote down some for instances because I never trust the for instances. But I, I, I think of Hitler, who did a lot of what he did under the banner of his Christianity. Like that. Now, in that case, the Christian world responded as we just celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Which I can't imagine, like, not on a, go on a tangent, but I can't imagine what those young men did on that day. Like, it's just, can't ima- like, can't imagine. But there's a whole lot that's done in the name of, 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 under the banner of Christianity that is probably actually demonic influences trying to discredit the name of Christ. And so he's not looking into these demons to be on his advisory panel to help him kind of go out and win the world or maybe to offer him, like at the temptation, a way to bypass the cross. And so Jesus has all the authority over them. And in verse 12, he earnestly warned them not to tell them who he was. He shut them down. Stop it. And they stopped. John then, or John, Mark moves the story along into verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Just really quickly, uh, don't let the up on the mountain go past you. There's, there seems to be significance in these mountaintop experiences, these mountaintop events. Um, in, in the Bible, we see significant things like Moses and receiving the commandments on the mountain. We see uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, the transfiguration, whichever mount <laughs> that was. Uh, there's a couple different views. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught from the sermon taught from the mountain. The Great Commission was given on top of a mountain. Um, We see the Olivet Discourse was on a mountain. And so now, as he's going to commission his apostles, they're going to do it up on a mountain. Um, There's a phrase, it's going to... There's tension in the scriptures. I say this all the time. And and we we really like to pick teams. And so when there's tension, you got to be, it's like you, we, there's something within us that tells us that you have to be on one side or the other. There's no room for like, just sit in the middle and accept tension on both sides. But this, um, this verse, and summon those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. This, this, there's a tension between our, like this, the, the sovereignty of God and our free will. And this phrase definitely leans heavy on the sovereignty of God. He summoned them. There was, they were coming. <laughs> he summoned those who he himself, when you see that he himself, that's, that's, that's the emphasize it's 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 placing it sounds funny but it's trying to like convey that he himself the messiah the messiah himself he's the one who desired them to come to him and they came when i think about like obviously this week i've been i've been asked to go do a funeral this is my first funeral i've ever had to do for a seal especially in this magnitude and so there's a lot of like 
rest, like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get stuck in this position to, like, have to get up and, like, share my faith in this context? People say, oh, how did you become, when did you make that choice? Like, I don't make a choice. Like, I feel like God called, and I responded. It's not like I woke up one day and said, oh, I'm going to just walk away from my career at 12 years and go be a SEAL. I mean, go be a pastor, whatever I am now. Um, it was more like you're on this path and you're going you're gonna to do these things. And I'm grateful to be doing these things. But I do believe that God has called each one of us to something. And in the free will side, I think there are plenty of people who have, who have just flat out rejected God and said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. I've heard about people in their 80s who say, I need to pursue this because God's been telling me to do it for years and I just never, ever did it. And they never, ever found peace because they weren't faithful to the calling that God had called them to. So I'm not saying this is... It certainly is ministry, but ministry, we've distorted that to make it think that, oh, that's a vocational thing. If you're a Christian, you're in ministry. You've been called to, to serve. And so my, my prayer for you, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, it says that God has appointed basically elders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so um, if you're in Christ, God has called you to something, and it's your responsibility, my responsibility, the church's responsibility to, to help you find that calling. But don't press back on something that God's asking you to do. In verse 14, he appointed the 12. So here we are. He's, gonna, he's, he's appointing the 12, these guys that would be the apostles. Um, we're going to get their names in a second here. Uh, 12 is obviously a significant number. The 12 tribes of Israel, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm not going to go into. So that, super important work. This is in the Greek, it's a heine clause. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a clause that, that gives you the reason why he did what he did. So he appointed the 12 for what? So that they would be with him. This is the foundation of the Christian life. God hasn't called you to do for him because he can't. God has called you into relationship with him to spend time with him. Um, this is where discipleship happens. It happens with you being with Jesus. Now, Hopefully our time on Sunday through worshiping through music, worshiping through giving, worshiping through studying of the word, worshiping through fellowshipping with one another, we've, we've, we've distorted the word worship to think of it as music. So I'm trying to clarify that worship goes beyond music. Through these things, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, being here collectively as Hebrews calls us to do, Hopefully all of these things, prayerfully I probably should say, all of these things force us to be with Jesus. And it's from this place of relationship that they're going to launch out. And that he could send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. Spending time with Jesus. 
They're going to spend time with him over the course of the next three years. They're going to spend time with him, spend time with him, spend time with him. He's going to be executed. He's going to go to the grave. He's going to rise again. He's going to, they're, they're going to spend time with him on short spurts. Then he's going to ascend into heaven. And then they're going to continue being with him. Just because he left doesn't mean that they stopped being with him. As he's gone from us, it doesn't mean that we're not with him or we're not called to be with him as followers of Christ. And so they spent time with him. They spent time with him. And persecution came, and they continued to seek him and to spend time with him. More persecution came. Acts 4.13, what do we read there? In that passage, as persecution is building, the disciples, a couple of them are brought before the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do? We killed Jesus. Why, are they, why is this still unraveling? And so they're trying to find more cause to then take care of the apostles and this church that's exploding suddenly. And we read there, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, that they were amazed and began to recognize them as, I hope you circle this in your Bible, highlight it in your Bible, link it back to, to Mark. They recognized them as having been with Jesus. This is the foundation for all evangelism. It's not about programs. It's not about doing big blowout events. The, 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 the example, the way we see in Scripture is people are spending time with Jesus. Then they go out. They cultivate relationships. They give of themselves. And then the opportunity for evangelism happens. It's not the church's responsibility to do what you've been called to. We each have been called, commissioned, to go share the good news. You get this question all the time. Do we as a church want to reach our community for Christ? Of course we want to reach our community for Christ. All right? We, yes. We live in a dying world. How do we do that? The Valley Center's got a bunch of fences. We don't even have a Starbucks. We don't have, like... Like, how do we draw? Like, how? That's you. Get involved in 4-H. Get involved in whatever. Join the cemetery board. That's what I did. I volunteer at the police department. Go give of yourselves. Get involved with the community. Computer. Community. Develop relationships where you really, really have a relationship with those that don't know Christ. Spend time with Jesus. You don't have anybody that's not a Christian in your life? Well, start praying, Lord, I don't have a single person that doesn't know Christ. I don't even know where to go about that. And then put yourself out there in community. Like, I don't know, what do you like? Go do what you like. Go, like, just do extra laps in Tractor Supply Company and, like, maybe you'll bump into somebody. Like, bump into somebody, establish a relationship. Like I'm saying this with deep, deep conviction. Like there's a new book that I've only got, I've, I've like haven't read it yet. It's on my to-do list, but my wife read it and so I've heard all about it. So it's kind of like I've read it. <laughs> and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key and this whole lady, it's like you got saved, you have a house key. Use your home as a place of evangelism. Invite people in hospitality. 
It's funny, where have I seen this before? All through the New Testament. Be hospitable. Open people up to your house. Give your lives to others. That's where evangelism happens. We provide little cards, invite people to church. When was the last time you invited somebody to church? Maybe you don't have it to like, I want to like say, hey, we have a great church. I think it's a great church. I love my church. Come. We'd love to have you here. It's not for others to do. It's for you to do. It's for me to do. For all of us. And in our community, you got it. Our people are buried behind two-acre fences and, and shotguns. And, you know, like, we live in a, 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 a culture that is becoming more and more repulsed with Christianity or their caricature of it. And so you need to be the gospel to those around you. And it takes time. It could be 23 years before you see fruit. I think about 23 years ago when I became a Christian as a young Navy SEAL, trying to figure out how, did it, how does being a Navy SEAL and being a Christian work? How, like, how do they fit together? Kept plugging along, kept getting made fun of, like, kept getting harassed for my, for my faith, my stump, like, for me to think that I am this week have been asked, and this is like a prayer request, that I've been asked to go back to my brotherhood, which you can't get any more hostile to the gospel than that place, that there's probably going to be thousands of seals, biker dudes and tattooed artist people. And God has placed me in this position through these relationships that I thought I would never have an inroads. And I've now been asked to do this funeral for a man that doesn't know Christ. So you could say I need a little wisdom about how to bridge that gap. So you might not think that you're doing anything, but if you establish relationships with people, genuine relationships with people, eventually the bottom's going to fall out. And you're going to say, what is this that you believe? And that's where Peter says, be ready in season and out to respond. Okay. Moving on to the 12 one, I'll go quickly. So there's a whole list. And he appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James, to them that he gave the name Bonerges is the best I can say of it. I prefer Sons of Thunder. The reason they got that name is they get to the spot, they're all fired up with stuff. And Hey, Jesus, you want us to pray pray fire from heaven just to take out all of Samaria, turn into glass? That would be awesome. And Jesus says, oh, you guys, yay, sons of thunder. Um, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the sons of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. There's a whole lot of guys in this list that we know nothing about. The Bible doesn't share anything about them, which is also encouraging to me. These are the apostles. You can do significant things for God that the world will never, ever know about. Most of us, that's the case. So we have Simon Peter, who's kind of like the default leader of the early church. We have James and John, who are brothers. James is the first martyr of the church. There's John, who is a little brother. He was the youngest at his time of calling, and he was the oldest, uh, the last remaining. 
Simon, James, and John were part of the inner three. So there was like leaders amongst the leaders that there was this, there was this inner circle of three that were able to see spectacular things that, that the others didn't get a chance to see. There's Andrew, who's Peter's brother. It's, it's been suggested that the most significant thing he did was bring his brother to Jesus. There's Philip. This is not the deacon Philip in Acts. We don't really know anything about him. His name means lover of horses, so maybe he was from Valley Center. I don't know. Uh, Bartholomew, which is probably Nathaniel, nothing's really known. There's Matthew, who is Levi the tax collector. There's Thomas, who we all know, the doubting one. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. This is thought to be Matthew's brother because they both have the dad with the same last name or the same first name. Then there's Simon the Zealot, which we like, I got it, like, that he and Matthew are on the same team. Matthew, who's a total turncoat for Rome and is hated by everybody. Then, then you have Judas Iscariot, who's like a member of the Tea Party. This is like pairing AOC and ran Paul together, and then they suddenly be like in cahoots for Jesus. It doesn't make it, you can't get any more polarized. Oh, I, I think I, did I skip over Thaddeus? His name was Judas. Bummer. He kind of started going by Thaddeus as history unfolded. Judas kind of went out of style. And then we all know Judas Iscariot. And I do think when I read that name, I think in Judas there's a reminder that people will fail you. And often those that are closest to you. Did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? Of course. I don't know that I have more to say. I'm out of time, so I'll move on from that one. So when I look at this passage, these 12, I think now we're seeing the formation when Jesus a few weeks ago said, new wine, new wineskins. Can't patch on a new piece of cloth to an old piece of cloth. Um, This is a motley crew. These guys don't fit the image of the the, the religious establishment. But these are the guys that Jesus is calling to himself to establish his church that would sprout out from the foundation of Israel. When I look at this whole passage, I see a contrast of, of groups that want to be entertained by Jesus and those that wanted to be with Jesus, which begs the question, which group am I in? Am I coming to Jesus for entertainment or am I coming to Jesus because I want to spend time with him? There's a conviction that our calling is to be with Jesus. You can't bypass that. Being with Jesus is the foundation for everything else. Let's pray. Father, we desire to consider our lives before you. As we see these groups, even unclean spirits that are professing the right things, 
for the wrong reasons, we can't help but to examine our own lives in relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would show each one of us where we stand with you. Have we truly given our lives to you as Savior? Or have we merely come to you to be entertained, to treat you as a rabbit foot, uh, to treat you as our butler, to tell you what we need? Father, I pray that you would convict each one in this room or that's hearing that has kind of gone off course or maybe they were never on course correctly with you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to have a right understanding of the gospel that Christ came to live his life as an example to fulfill the law and ultimately to go to the cross where he would surrender his life as the perfect sacrifice so that in him we can have life, we can have reconciliation with you, that we can be transformed. Father, I pray for those in this room that maybe have never trusted in Christ, that you would help them to believe. Father, we thank you for children, and it's okay that we have kids that make some noises. We th we're grateful for them. Father, we pray for those of us who have given our lives to you. We ask, Lord, that you would correct us if we've fallen into the trap of desiring to do, to be accepted by you. Help us to understand grace, that you truly have done it for us, that we are accepted in Christ, and that our actions flow from that. Father, I pray that you would help us to spend time with you, that we would build margin into our life, that your spirit would fill us, that he would lead us and guide us, and that we as a church would be, as Chuck Smith used to say, that healthy sheep reproduce. Father, give us a burden for the lost around us. Help us personally take ownership of the Great Commission. Help us to see those around us that don't know you, that we would go beyond our comfort zone and establish relationships that are truly meaningful. Lord, help us to be ready for the opportunity to share about Christ when presented with it. Help us to share when you are leading and we don't feel comfortable or that the opportunity is presenting itself or that you want us to. Lord, help us to honor you with our lives. We thank you, Lord, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.